Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're most very welcome. Partway through Matthew chapter 10 in season 3 in our journey through the text of the whole Bible. And if you are here for the very first time, well you're very welcome. And why not hit that subscribe button for wherever it is you receive your podcasts from. And that way ensure you join us on this journey and you don't miss another single episode. So we'll just now drop back into the main text and pick up where we left off last time. And we're halfway through Matthew chapter 10. And we're just going to look at three verses today, 16 to 18. Please do hang around at the end and I'll update you on a few bits and pieces. Okay, bye for now. Okay friends, well here we are again and we're picking up the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 10 and we're going to be considering together the various challenges that we face as being a disciple of God as first of all relayed to us through the teaching of Jesus and his disciples and what that might mean to us today. And the first thing we're going to consider is one of the main challenges of being a disciple is dealing with opposition. But before we deal with the passage in detail, I'd like us just to take note of a couple of things. When we were studying the Sermon of the Mount a few weeks back, we noticed that one of Matthew's great characteristics was his way of laying things out in a very systematic and relevant order. Matthew's custom was to collect in one place all the material that Jesus said about or were relevant to a specific subject. Even if it was sometimes, we can identify by comparing it to the other synoptic gospels, that it was gathered together, words spoken by Jesus, but on several different occasions. And this passage, many believe, is one of those instances where Matthew has collected his material from different times and places. He has collected the things which Jesus says about this subject we're going to look at on various occasions from when he's heard him speak. And here he pulls together some references Jesus has made to persecution. And he puts together both what Jesus said when he sent his men out on their first expedition and also some stuff that he taught them about what would happen after his resurrection and return to the Father and then also his return in the second coming. So he's talking to them primarily at a point of time when they're going out into the world So as we're going through this Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that there's a difference, a distinction between being a child of God and being a disciple. Matthew's very clear about that. I've called it the difference between being a child and being a disciple because in order for to be a child of God, all we have to do is trust in Jesus Christ. That's Matthew's perspective and the other Gospel accounts and the teachings that follow in the letters after that. The Bible very clearly teaches that God simply wants to give us heaven as a gift. It was said of that in Romans 6.23 when Paul wrote, The gift of God is eternal life, and that that simply comes about by trusting in Jesus Christ, who died in our place to pay for our sins. Following Christ, though, is something else again. If you become a follower of Christ, then you've decided not only to trust in him in order to gain access to heaven, 
But in reality, it's a decision that you want to live your life and learn to be like him. The word disciple itself just means student or learner. So in a sense, you've made a decision to learn how to live your life from that point forward. In other words, you've gone beyond the clear step of just trusting in him for your salvation, but you're actually making a decision to obey him, whatever words he says and whatever words he teaches. And if you start to do that, then I believe, and Matthew points it out here, that this whole other world may open up to you, so to speak. In Matthew chapter 4, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So if you become a follower of Christ and you do that, what he's saying is you start at some level to begin to introduce or to talk about Jesus Christ to other people. But there is something that you need to know and Matthew wants to warn us about here. And Jesus himself, of course, by relaying it, Jesus is warning his disciples about this, which is why Matthew wants to include us to let us know, who will read his gospel later, that these same principles apply to us. He wants us to know that if we go swimming in those waters, then we're going to discover their shark-infested water, so to speak. In other words, for those who have made the decision to obey, to follow Christ, to be disciples, they will very soon, likely, discover they meet opposition. In fact, for some, it can be a whole lot more than opposition. In some parts of the world, even today, Christians face outright persecution for choosing to follow the Lord. So what should we do if that happens? How should we handle it if we meet really strong, direct opposition to our Christian faith? What happens when it becomes more than just resistance or verbal abuse? What would we do if we became the victims of outright persecution, as would happen to many of these disciples? Well, Jesus here is preparing them for that, and we can learn something from that. When he sent them out, he told them what was likely, what was coming, but he also helpfully told them what to do when it happens. So what I'd like to do today is take some time to look at what he told them. There are some timeless truths here because they apply not only to what he was telling the disciples then, but to all Christian disciples in all ages. And that's what I want us to take a look at today. So if you'd like to know how to handle opposition when you express your Christian faith, because if you're a disciple of Christ, you're going to meet that type of resistance. And I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 10. And let me begin by just reading these three verses from 16 to 18 for you. Where Jesus said, remember he's talking to his disciples as he sent them out. And he said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will also be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. So what we see here are two potential types of persecutions that face Christians. Now the immediate context of this passage is of course Matthew sending out these 12 guys, these 12 apostles. And he says in the early part of this chapter that he sent them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. He's giving his disciples here, and perhaps for all of us in all ages, timeless instructions concerning the opposition that we might face. And in this portion of his commission, so to speak, he focuses on the opposition that they're going to get initially from unbelievers. 
As I see and read these verses, I see within them four pieces of advice given, four pieces of advice for us to follow. The first thing he clearly says is that we should be wise. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, if you're going to live a life in obedience to his commands, and thereby accepting this commission to go and tell others about him, one of the first things you simply know is you need to approach this task with wisdom. Look at verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of worlds. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This verse indicates that they and we are to be wise, and we are to be wise because we're like a sheep in a pack of the middle of wolves. And of course, a lamb in the midst of a pack of wolves would be considered vulnerable, defenseless. He has to depend on the shepherd for his protection. So Jesus says, you are like a helpless lamb, and I'm sending you out there among the wolves, so you're going to have to depend on me to protect you. But what I want you to know is, although you need to be wise as a serpent, you should be harmless as a dove. Now, it helps to understand this tricky scripture, which represent two very different perspectives on how we should be, one and both at the same time. If we understand that the Greek word translated here, wise, means to be practically wise. It means to be sensible and prudent. It's not some sort of abstract wisdom of the likes of a philosopher. It's a sort of street wisdom kind of thing. Street smart. That's the idea he means here. But he quickly couples it with the fact that we also need to be harmless as a dove. Now the idea behind harmless also contains within it means we are to be pure, to be simple, to be unmixed in our motives. I remember wrestling with this verse a number of years ago when I was going through the book of James and at the end of chapter 3 it comes up against a similar idea and James talks about how our motives need to be pure and I remember then I connected that passage with this passage here because it's talking about having pure motives. In other words, we go out into these situations and although they're dangerous, we go out with very pure motives. We're not out there to try and manipulate anybody. We're not out there to try and fleece anybody in any way. Our motives have to be untameless. So in that way, we are to be harmless as a dove. We must have no plans to deceive or manipulate anybody in any way. We all recognise doves as a very nervous, flighty animal, one that will fly away at the slightest provocation. So what Jesus is teaching us is that we must be mild, we must be wise, and we must be harmless. We're not to go out in any way that would hurt anybody by the message we have to deliver. We're not meant to cause upset or disturb them for upset's sake. What Jesus is teaching here is that his disciples are to be tough, single-minded, but also tender-hearted at the same time. They must be shrewd, wise, but not allow that to slip over into being cunning or deceptive. And they must be innocent, but at the same time not let that innocence step over into being naive. And then, of course, we must be pure in motive and thereby have no motivation to do anybody any harm. So that's the first thing he says. There's a lot in there, isn't there? But there's more because he goes on to say other things we need to be aware of when we look at verse 17. Because he says, beware, they will deliver you up to councils and maybe scourge you, whip you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. 
Now, this council he talks about is being handed over to. It was the leadership of the local church. Verse 17 is talking about the fact that these guys here, these disciples are being sent out and it's very likely because of the nature of the way the local Jewish synagogue system worked that they would be brought before the local Jewish religious leaders wherever they travelled through. And if they fall foul of those councils, they very well may be whipped. Now sure enough, those days the religious leaders in Palestine did have authority to punish people for all kinds of things. And one of those punishments they were allowed to do was to scourge them. Now under Roman law they weren't allowed to kill them. They could scourge them up to a limited number of strokes that could cause suffering but would not cause death. Which is why, by the way, they had to go to the Romans and hand them over to have Jesus crucified because they could not inflict that sort of punishment. But Jesus says here that his followers who go out into those situations may indeed face three kinds of trials. First of all, we notice that it says the state might persecute them. They might be brought before councils and governors. When Christ's followers are brought to court to judgment, he says they're not to worry about what to say. He actually says, for God will give them the words, I will be your mouth and teach you what to speak. But also the church would persecute them. The church, i.e. the synagogues of those days, did not like their places to be upset. And they had ways of dealing with people who were classed as disturbers of the peace by coming in and giving strange or different teachings. And these Christians, of course, these early disciples, and throughout the early church history, they would go into these towns and cities and they would turn the world upside down around these local Jewish communities. And then finally, their families might even persecute them. Their nearest and dearest, they might think they've gone mad, but they might, at the very least, will shut the door against them. Sometimes, Christians, particularly new believers, are confronted with some really hard times. And one of the hardest things they will face, the hardest choice of all they might have to be forced to make, is the choice between obedience to what Jesus Christ says and obedience to their friends and family. And Jesus also warned that in the days to come, believers, disciples, might well find that state and church and family all join against them. Now, no one can read this passage without being deeply impressed with the absolute honesty of Jesus. He never hesitated to tell people just what they might expect if they followed them. And he didn't sugar the medicine, if you like. Now, this stands in stark contrast, seems to me, to the way the world and the modern church thinks it needs to win followers. The world will offer a person wine and roses all the way. They'll promise comfort, ease, advancement for the fulfilment of worldly ambitions. But Jesus here, in the launching and the beginning of the early church and his first disciples, he offers his followers hardship and death. It's interesting to me that Churchill, when calling people to resist the Nazi rise in Europe, what he offered the British people in their call to war was nothing else, he said, than blood, toil, sweat and tears. A famous explorer that I'm very interested in, a guy called Ernest Shackleton, when he proposed his march to the South Pole, he asked for volunteers that would be willing to trek amid the blizzards and across the polar ice. 
He was very clear he expected it to be extremely difficult, yet he was still inundated with letters from young and old, rich and poor, from the highest people in society to the lowest, all desiring to share in that great adventure. And he had to show incredible wisdom to work out and sort out the romantics, as he described it, from the practically gifted and uh, motivated people. I feel for me that it's interesting that I believe in some sense that modern church needs to learn that we can't really attract people if we're just saying it's going to be an easy way of life. Not only may they become discouraged when they find out at times how difficult the Christian life can be and the opposition that they face, it seems much more pertinent to me to call people and recognise that that call is to a heroic struggle. And I also believe, ironically, that that is what ultimately speaks to men and women's hearts. Now, we've been studying through this chapter for a few days now. But if you go think about it and read chapter 10 from the beginning in its entirety, and not just these few verses that we've arrived at and have pulled out in isolation today. But if you read the whole chapter and then you came to this verse, it would jump off the page at you. If we go back and look at the beginning of the chapter, he said in verse 5, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then it continues and it leads into this. So what is going on here? He sent them to Israel now, and now he tells them they're going to be persecuted by the Gentiles. It's that observation, as well as a few others, that has driven most Bible teachers to the conclusion that what he's doing theologically here, he's not only addressing them for today and for their future mission, but he's at some sense jumping forward to a time in the future called the Tribulation. And this will certainly seem to be confirmed when we later get to verse 33, when in this chapter he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And that is very clearly a reference to the second coming. So apparently he's giving these instructions to the disciples. And for that he has a near view in that they're going to experience opposition now. But he also wants to lay down the principle that this is going to apply to everyone right up to and prior to his second coming. It's fulfilled there now for them today. But there's more to come and it will come again throughout church history who knew how long it would be at that time and it will be ultimately be fulfilled when he comes again this is not an uncommon thing the bible frequently talks about prophecy and jesus himself does it and when he does it he often has this multi-time factored approach he's speaking for the immediate future and he's also skipping to the longer term future and how it will be fully fulfilled ultimately there And apparently Bible experts say that's actually exactly what's going on here. But be that as it may, and that will be critical for something that we're going to look at tomorrow. But for today, I want to point out to you that what we need to understand and take out of this as disciples, as people who have chosen to obey and follow Jesus, is that we're going to face opposition day to day as we go out and do that. Maybe even for some facing physical danger and harm. That is the sort of thing that absolutely Christ says is very likely to those that are a witness to him and those who want to testify to others of the love of God in Christ. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare you ahead of time because there are wolves out there. There are sharks swimming in these waters. So be prepared. There's going to be opposition to us and what we do. Jesus then goes on not only to tell us the facts of that we're going to be persecuted, but he also gives us a little theological insight, if you like, some of the reasons that the Christian and the Christian church is persecuted. And firstly, and some would say probably the main thing, is that Christians and the Christian church are persecuted because it threatens the established order. Looking at things from our point of view, we may find it hard to understand and think, why would a government wish to persecute the Christians within their land, where their only aim is to live in honesty, in purity, to support others, to support charity, to express love to others, and to live a quiet, respectful life. But in the latter days, and today, and in those days of the Roman government, they all will consider themselves to having good reasons for persecuting Christians. Here's one that I'll just describe to you. One reason where Christian culture conflicts with the current thinking of the time in terms of the Romans at the time of Jesus. I don't think I can pass by, particularly in these days, with very heightened views on justice and equality, of drawing our attention to the issue of slavery and what that meant in the Roman church as the Christian church began to grow. A very real difficulty for the Roman authorities was the position of slaves within the Christian church. Across the entire Roman Empire, there were estimated to be 60 million slaves. And it was always one of the main fears of the empire, particularly in the first centuries, that these slaves might rise in revolt. If the structure of this empire of Rome was to remain intact, they had to be kept in place and nothing could be done or should be done by anyone to encourage them to rebel in any way, because the consequences might be terrible beyond imagining for the Roman state. Now, although the Christian church made no attempt to free the slaves, it did within the church at least treat slaves as equal. Clement of Alexander is on record as pleading that slaves are like ourselves, as he said. And the words of Christ and his salvation applied equally to every one of them as it did even the person of the most high-born in society. Lactanius, a Roman writer who was a Christian, wrote that their slaves are not slaves to us. We deem them as brothers after the Spirit of God in work and in religion as fellow servants. Worse than that for the Romans was the fact that it was perfectly possible for a slave to hold high office in the Christian church. As early as the 2nd century, there were two bishops of Rome, guys called Callistus and Pius, who had been slaves, and it was not uncommon at all for elders and deacons to be slaves in the church. In the list of names that closes off the Book of Romans, Greek experts have identified that within that list there is a leader of a household, someone who has a rich household, who has a lowly position in the church, and that the pastor, or or at least the deacon in that church, is actually a slave of that person. So in terms of their treatment of slaves, the Christian church seemed to be a potential, as far as the Roman authorities were concerned, as a force for disrupting the very basis of the civilization and the empire they were trying to build. They threatened the very existence of the Roman Empire by giving slaves positions that they should never or could never have had as Roman law sought. 
There is no doubt that Christianity seriously affected certain vested interests connected with both the Roman religion and the Roman state. When Christianity came to Ephesus, for example, the trade of the local silversmiths was dealt an almost mortal blow as far fewer people started to desire to buy the images that they created. Christianity preaches a view that no totalitarian state can accept or can live with. Christianity deliberately aims to obliterate certain trades and professions. And it will do that to this day. It will make the making of money, passively or specifically, out of certain areas almost impossible within a Christian society by nature of the people turning away from those things. Things like prostitution or slavery, as I mentioned earlier. And it still does that today. Therefore, for that thing, if nothing else, Christians still today are liable to persecutions for the faith. If you're going to be committed to following Jesus Christ, then you're going to meet some opposition. That's what he's teaching here. So we need to be prepared. It's coming. But you know what? It's not all bad news. Knowing that will keep you on your toes. As J. Keek Chesterton, the famous English writer, once says, I like being in hot water spiritually because it keeps me clean. Think about that. Jesus now will give a third suggestion, and he'll do that where we pick it up in verse 19. But we look at that tomorrow. Bye for now. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Slightly longer one than usual, but I do hope you find it helpful. I'm so grateful that each and every one of you have made the decision to join me on this journey, working through the Bible together. Thank you for being part of this community. If you are enjoying it and benefiting from it, then why not consider sharing a link to friends or family to where they can get this podcast from. It's hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com, but you can pretty much pick it up from all the main podcast providers. Anywhere that you're getting your current podcasts from, you'll find it then. But with that said, we'll just leave it there and say that's it for today. I do hope you'll join me back again together very soon, and that as we work together, following the decision to make the study of the Bible part of our daily lives. So thank you so much again, and I'll see you tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.